don't know. I may need your help. Whatever I can do, I'll be in touch. And then the line had gone dead, and there was only the rustling of Patricia's skirt as she moved through the kitchen, the sharp whistle of the kettle she had put on coming to a boil. He had set the phone back in its cradle and taken Patricia's hand. Callum turned from the window, from the tiny white flowers, from the shadows pooling in the recesses of the yard. Across the study, his golden retriever, Charlie, lifted his head from the warm patch of sunlight where he had been sleeping and opened his mouth in a wide yawn. Though overcast, the day had been warm for November. Callum had left the front and back doors open except for the screens. Now a cold breeze blew in off the water and circulated through the old house. He heard the faint murmur of tires on the gravel driveway to the front of the house, and Charlie rose and padded over, his tail wagging furiously. "'How was your nap, old man?' Callum asked, scratching the dog's broad head. The car grew closer and stopped. Callum opened the top drawer of his desk and drew out a small computer disc. A door slammed outside, and heavy footsteps sounded on the planks of the front steps. Callum crossed through the study and down the hall into the living room. The reassuring jingle of Charlie's collar followed behind him. Through the fine mesh of the screen door, he made out the figure of a man with one arm hooked around a sack of groceries. A van with bold lettering reading Saquamish Market was parked in the drive. Callum lifted the flimsy door latch and stepped out onto the porch. "'Here's the order you called in this morning,' the man said. "'I'm afraid we're out of the tuna, so we threw a small snapper in instead. "'I've got everything else, though.' "'Just like old times,' Callum answered, nodding. "'How much do I owe you?' Twenty-seven fifty, sir.' "'Callum reached into his pocket and pulled out three ten-dollar bills. "'He placed the money and the disc into the man's free hand and took the groceries. "'Keep the change,' he said, smiling too. "'It's the right thing to do,' the man said.' He slipped the money and the disc into his pocket. No one knows. I haven't told a soul. As far as the agency's concerned, I'm just up here doing a little fishing. Nothing can go wrong. Thank you, Callum said. The man waved and bounded down the steps toward the van. The sun had slipped once again through a rift in the clouds. It sat low in the sky, bathing the man and the van and the woods beyond them in harsh orange light. Callum listened to the engine roaring to life and the grinding of wheels spinning in the loose rock of the drive. He watched the flash of the chrome bumper and the fleeting face of the happy fisherman painted above the market's logo. Live bait, cold beer, groceries, as the van disappeared around the bend into the trees. Come on, Charlie, Callum said softly. He held the screen door open and followed his dog back into the cool shade of the house. In the kitchen, Callum set the groceries down gently on the counter and stood for a while gazing out through the wide windows above the sink. Beyond the sloping green of the backyard, the flat surface of Puget Sound reflected the glint of the late afternoon sun. Large gray geese floated and bobbed close to shore, their throaty cries skipping across the barnacled rocks of the beach. In the dense woods on the other side of the bay, slant of shadow and light shifted. Pools and eddies drifted slowly with the tide. Out at the mouth of the bay, far across the sound, the lights of the Seattle skyline brightened against the impending darkness. To the east, beyond the city, the snow caps and rocky faces of the Cascades towered like a theatrical backdrop. 
when he finally turned from the window and began putting the groceries neatly away, the first ruddy hints of sunset had appeared in the west. Callum unwrapped the small snapper from its clean white paper and ran his fingers along its tough scales. He opened its stomach and ran a sharp knife between the fine bones and the white flesh, deftly separating the prickly skeleton from the meat. Callum set the clean snapper gently in a small glass baking dish, cut paper-thin slices of orange, lime, and sweet onion, and crushed fresh cloves of garlic, stuffing them into the cavity of the fish. He rubbed the scales with olive oil, fresh pepper, and white wine, then covered the dish and put it in the refrigerator. He set a place for himself at the table on the glassed-in porch, a clean linen napkin, a silver fork and knife, a thin-stemmed wine glass. From the porch, Callum could see the dusky outlines of his wife's garden. The flashy flowers of summer were withering now. The rhododendron bushes held only the husks of blossoms. The heavy heads of browning dahlias sagged on their stems. Beyond the garden, past where the yard sloped toward the beach, black shapes of leggy water birds rose from the reeds and stepped offshore, fishing for their own dinner. And he could see his own shape in the darkening window panes the few remaining great tufts of hair springing raggedly from his scalp, the creased folds of flesh beneath his chin. Callum peered down at his hands and let his eyes trace the harsh lines of veins, the brown spots of age. He closed his eyes and imagined his wife's strong legs as she walked, although he could look back at pictures of the two of them and know for certain that she had aged along with him. It still always seemed to him that Patricia lived in a kind of magical stasis, a permanent youthfulness. Nothing can go wrong. The words he had heard earlier rattled through his brain. He thought of the letters written to Patricia from Italy, and later the phone calls from other posts, the same panic, the same fears. There was always something that could go wrong, always, except for the muffled humming of the refrigerator and the occasional rustling of Charlie in the living room. The house was deathly quiet. In the downstairs bathroom, Callum found his lycra running pants, his windbreaker, and his old Columbia sweatshirt. He stepped out of his jeans and sweater and put on his rowing clothes. He let Charlie out the back door and watched the dog nose its way through the wilted garden to the beach. As he made his way across the damp lawn, Callum heard the retrievers splashing at the water's edge. He was a man who had lived his life in deliberate disorder. He knew the dangers of predictability, and it had taken him years to adjust to the luxuries of a routine. His nightly row was one of these luxuries. Charlie, he called. The dog came bounding up out of the shadows, then darted off again. Callum watched the dog's yellow haunches disappear into the dense woods. They could be out there watching, he thought, settled quietly into the loamy autumn carpet of wet leaves and pine needles, and if they were, what would they see? An old man and his dog, a fool, unarmed, a target, naked, alone, ambling carelessly across the cool grass. Callum followed the beach to the small boathouse he had built for his skull. A single light illuminated the wooden dock. He opened the padlock and let himself in through the wide doors. He flipped on the bare overhead bulb and gently lifted the skull onto his shoulders from its rack on the wall. Stepping carefully out onto the dock, he eased the sleek boat into the water and secured it with a piece of rope. Patricia had reprimanded him many times for rowing in the dark, but Callum had always assured her of his safety. 
He had even attached two small lights to the bow and stern so he could be seen in the winter months. Callum made his way back into the boathouse for a pair of oars and flipped off the light. Charlie's collar tinkled somewhere down the beach. Across the sound, the moon had begun to rise. It hung huge and low over the bright buildings of downtown Seattle. The last lights of dusk flickered across the small bay before him. Callum placed his oars in their locks and stepped gingerly into the skull. He untied the line and pushed the small craft free of the dock. Callum set his blades in the water and pulled. He loved the fluid motion of gliding soundlessly over the bay, the power of his own movements. Tonight, as he picked up speed and settled into a rhythm, he watched the moon shrinking as it rose. The first full moonrise he had ever seen had been over Italy during the war. The Good War, they all called it. As his legs pumped back and forth, he thought about sitting in the darkened body of the plane that night, listening to the hum of the engines as they gained altitude. There were three other men with him, waiting to jump, and they all smoked pell-mell cigarettes and joked nervously with each other. It had been different later, in South America and Korea and Vietnam. The wars they fought had changed, the reasons for them, the nature of them. But that night over Italy, when they opened the hatch and they all saw the huge globe of the moon shining low over the countryside, when he was thrust from the body of the plane into the cold rush of empty space, he was buoyed by a great sense of morality. Callum was halfway down the bay now. A trickle of sweat dropped between his shoulder blades. The oars creaked in their locks and his seat hummed, sliding forward and back. The bow and stern lights glimmered over the rippled water. He thought about how easy it had been today, passing the small disc like the priest at Catholic school passing the wafer. Callum rounded the curve of the bay and turned his skull back toward home. Clouds of his breath hovered in the stern light. He thought about Patricia, who was in New